And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered or marveled, everyone at all things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples, Let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they uh, but they understood not the saying, and it was hid from them, uh, that they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying. Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him, and said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us pray. Our holy God, we come now to the preaching of the word, that central aspect of the ministry itself. And your minister asks for divine help now. We pray that the spirit of God that inspired the text would be in the preached word, that the minister would preach only that which is necessary for the glory of God and for the edification of the people of God. The minister first asks that Christ would increase, that the minister would decrease, and that he would be a servant of all here to the glory of Jesus Christ, that you would hide him in Christ, and that he would preach nothing but Christ and the will of Christ to the people of God, putting away his opinion and his own thoughts, conforming the preaching to the mind and will of God. And we pray for the people of God that they would be willing to have the word of God sink into their hearts, that it would come into freshly plowed ground and it would bear much fruit. Only your spirit can do these things, Father. And so we ask, O Holy Spirit, blow on our assembly now in the preaching of the word. And we ask and pray then, Father, that unto me who am less than the least of all saints, the grace would be given that I should preach among your congregation the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we ask this for his sake and in his name. Amen. Well, it was certainly self-seeking and pride that made an angel the devil. And it was self-seeking and pride that made a bishop who was meant to be equal with all others into a pope. Self-seeking is a grave and evil sin, friends, especially among those who are called to be servants of God. For we are called, all of us, to be a people who puts the Lord first and ourselves somewhere way below Him. We are called to be a people who serve all and our own self-seeking is to be put away. We remember in 3 John a man named Diotrephes, don't we? Who sought what? The preeminence. However, we read in the Bible that only one is meant to have the preeminence. Jesus Christ, who is to have the preeminence in all things, including our own lives. As such, we read in our own catechism that self-seeking and pride are sins against the very first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And so this is one of the most grievous and greatest sins. And yet it has become, especially in our society, one of the most acceptable sins in the church. We laud men. 
We look at celebrity pastors, even in the Reformed churches, and not much of the, and sometimes that's not even their fault as much as it is the people of God's fault. Lauding men and elevating them, not wanting to know what thus saith the Lord, but whoever it is that has his name in lights. I could not also help but think that this text came in God's good providence after our synod week, as we dealt with the sin of men who in pride destroyed a church, destroyed many lives, and hurt many, many souls, and has caused our synod to spend years now of many men in tears investigating these men's faults as leaders of the church. Self-exaltation, especially among Christ's servants, is a terribly grave sin. It strikes at the very honor and glory of Christ, and it elevates you and me above the Lord and above those we are called to serve. But if pride and self-seeking are such grave sins, what are the graces, you might ask, that are contrary to it? Well, Jesus Christ teaches you what those are and what you are to cultivate. Humility and dying to self. To consider Christ and others as better than yourself, as the scripture will say. And it is strange to say, as Christ not only tells us not to seek ourselves, he actually also explains this. As men seek prominence, he says something that is very strange to our flesh. Do you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? He says, beloved. The greatest in the kingdom are those who promote themselves the least who think of themselves less, the ones who seek not their own things, but they seek the things of the Lord and they serve others. These are those that are the greatest in the kingdom. He doesn't leave you asking the question in vain, who is greatest in the kingdom? He says very plainly, those who will die to self and look at others and serve their needs, those who will consider themselves least are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so today we consider the squabbling of the disciples and their question, who among us will be greatest? And out of their contention, we will consider our theme, which is the sin of self-seeking, the grace of humility, and its fruit, which is service. So the sin of self-seeking, the grace of humility, and its fruit, which is service. And God willing, we'll do so under three heads. First is the humility of the son. The second, the humility of a child. And third, the humility of a servant. So our first heading, the humility of the son. And in this heading, what we observe is something remarkable. That Jesus Christ, the Lord our righteousness, in view of his power and of his glory, was greatly humble and was never self-seeking, but instead became a servant to sinners. That's a remarkable thought. In that also, he is not only our righteousness in that, that is our duty, right? We are not so humble. Uh, We seek self. We don't serve others. And so Jesus Christ has to come out of the heavens. The Son of God comes in the incarnation to be our righteousness, to be humble, to serve others, though he has the very power and glory of God. But he not only is our righteousness in that, if we have received him by faith, but he is also our exemplar. In John 13, he said, Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example 
that ye should do as I have done to you. It's not about foot washing as an ordinance, but it's about this idea that if the master will go so low as to wash the dirty feet of his disciples, we ourselves are not to do any less than that ourselves. He says, I am your example in these things of dying to self and self and serving others. You know, Christ is the very incarnation of the greater to lesser argument when it comes to humility and thinking of our brothers and sisters. And so with that in view, let's pick up our narrative in verse 43. After Christ cast out the demon from the boy, we read, and they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. Right? With the word, Jesus Christ cast this demon out that had plagued this child for years. And the disciples themselves couldn't cast out the demon. We saw why last time. But all were amazed at the mighty power of God. And this shows you as Jesus Christ with his own word, without having to pray to the Father, casts out a demon from a boy. We see that this Christ is the God-man who exerted the mighty power of God is Christ's own power to cast out the demon. And so we begin with the question, right? If Christ uh, is God and he is our Lord, who can stand against him? And the answer is no one. Right? He is God Almighty. He is El Shaddai. He is Jehovah in the flesh. This is who Jesus is. And now you think of this, right? They're all amazed at this. And you can consider what is going on in the disciples' mind, right? The disciples are seeing this power. They're astonished by the Lord and they are amazed. However, their marveling clearly was beginning to send their thoughts to the wrong place, as it has been for some time, right? Their thought must have been something like this. Our master, right? Our Messiah, the Messiah cannot be stopped. Nothing can stop Jesus Christ. He has the mighty power of God. And that is, of course, true. And the general thought, as you're well aware, is probably often for them, let us go now, Christ, let us take Jerusalem and let us rule. And let us now have this earthly kingdom. And they're thinking, undoubtedly, with Christ with us, the time is ripe. We cannot fail in this. But verse 43 continues after they marvel at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered or marveled, everyone at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men, and so on. Now, in the parallel synoptics in in Mark and Matthew, we know he was speaking not just of being delivered, but of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He said it immediately after they started to wonder and marvel at his power, right? Because he must know that their thoughts went in the direction of premature glory. So immediately he corrects them. He knows what's in their heart. He says to them essentially, no, I must die first. First I must die and my cross must come before my crown. And, and Jesus, you must understand, did this constantly and he did it consistently. Whenever their thoughts went to his power, he says, I must die and I must be raised again. Don't get overly excited today. Back in verses 20 through 23, as we've come through Luke 9, when Jesus got Peter's confession, he was the Christ of God, the Messiah. What did he do? He straightly charged them, tell no one. Tell no one. 
And what did he follow it with? It's very interesting for our theme. A discourse that you must carry your cross and you must deny yourself. When they saw his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, he said that he must accomplish his decease. Right? Even when they saw his glory, a preview of it, he said, I must first go to Jerusalem and die. All the displays of Christ's power and majesty in this chapter are immediately followed with Christ saying he must first suffer. In other words, he had been trying to show them that he is the one prophesied of called the suffering servant of God. His glory would come later, but first must come his suffering and his service for us. You know, even after his resurrection, you know that many of the disciples did not get it. On the road to Emmaus, right, he said, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory in Luke 24? This is a constant struggle and challenge for his disciples. And he expounded the Old Testament to show that this was all prophesied. It's not a surprising or novel doctrine if you knew the word of God. Now, the thing is, while they were excited by earthly glory, The thing is, friends, that his suffering served his people in a greater way than if he had taken Jerusalem's throne. For them, the more glorious thing is for Christ to go to the cross. And I think we need to understand this, beloved. What would it profit his disciples if he had taken Jerusalem, which he had the power to do, but had not submitted to the cross and had not been delivered up for sinners? You know, the disciples may have enjoyed a few decades of temporal blessings on the earth, but then they would have died in their sin, and then comes the judgment. And without Christ on the cross and the resurrection afterwards, all they would have is not heaven, but hell. And they would have never had communion with the God that they loved. And we are like them in so many ways, beloved. We often want glory prematurely. One of the things that is very hard to teach our our, our children and requires the grace of God is this idea of delayed gratification. You know it for your own soul too. You know, you want everything today. You want everything today. And our society certainly now says, well, you can microwave food, you can go on the internet and order whatever you want in a second. And if it doesn't show up tonight, right, then you get upset and angry. If the box gets uh, 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 delayed by a day, you, write, you go and you think the end of the world has occurred. We do not want uh, anything to be put in its proper time. But God has made all things for their proper time. And God has decreed when everything must be done. And for our good, we want glory now. And so, they seemed very elated and intoxicated at the thought of Christ's power. And the thing is, when we see the power of Christ, one of the things that the servants of God can often, can often get into the severely evil thought of is start to wonder how Christ's power can be used as a means for my own self-advancement. You see it in the church all the time. You see ministers using the things of God for their own self-advancement. You know, you know the, perhaps the most grievous of that is you turn on the televangelist, of course. Right, using the things of God in order to fleece the sheep and to exalt themselves. Whenever you see the power of Christ, 
There are men who will come to take advantage of it, Judas, of course, being the prime example. But Jesus says when it comes to his crucifixion, let these words sink down into your ears. Uh, And I think that that is very necessary before we go much further, because Christ knows how we treat his word. Uh, What's the saying in our own society? Uh, Words that go in one ear and out the other, right? And you can see here kind of the root of what Jesus is saying. Don't do that. Let my words not only go in one ear and out the other, but go and sink into the ear. And then from the ear into the heart, where it ought to be, right? This is how we treat his word. It's not just his disciples that need this chastisement. Right? Thus far, the disciples hadn't gotten it. Right? You think about his words. Is there anything, boys and girls, I want to ask you, is there anything really hard to understand about what Jesus has said? When he says, I will be delivered into the hands of men, and I will have to die, and I will have to be raised again, and enter into my glory. Is there anything really hard to comprehend there? I'd imagine the average five-year-old here full well knows what the words mean. That is not the problem. They're very easy to know, but they were not sinking into the soul. They were not sinking from ear into heart that they would take it to heart. And when they didn't like what the Lord had to say, they refused to allow that word to actually settle in, thinking they might ignore it instead, which is what we do with the word of God. That is what we, all of us, have the temptation to do, that we will hear the word but not have it sink in and get to where it ought to be, into our very heart and mind. And this often requires hard work. I am sure there were many questions that the disciples had about what Jesus Christ meant. Aren't you the Messiah? I thought the Messiah was going to rule God's people. What do you mean you're going to die There are certainly questions they may have had, and they may have been legitimate questions, and they could have asked the Lord of that. And we're the same way. We might come to a word that is hard, and instead of truly grappling with the word, we will instead very quickly breeze over it, suspicious of what it may demand of us, not desiring to sit and meditate and think on the word of God. It comes into one ear and out the other. We have to. See how we treat the very word of God, my friends. We are not to be satisfied that we don't understand what Jesus means. He has given the word of God to us that we would understand it and that we would do it. The revealed things belong to us and to our children. Why? That we would do all the things in the word of God. So the disciples didn't do any of this, right? They didn't come to Christ and ask what it is that he meant. What was their response to Christ? Uh, sayings. Verse 45 says, they understood not the saying and they perceived it not. And the Holy Spirit gives his commentary. The saying was hid from them. Now, I, it doesn't appear from the text that there was an active work of Christ to blind their mind and their hearts so that they wouldn't perceive what he had to say, that he was actively trying to hide it from them. The point really seems to be that the hardness of their own heart was keeping the word from sinking in. As in the parable of the soils, right? At the time, their heart was not fertile ground. And the seed of the word was just bouncing off of the heart. And you think of all the reasons why this may be the case. And several of these are points of contact for us. 
Uh, it was very likely they had their own preconceived notions and opinions. And these things harden the heart. They, they think they know the will and mind of God and they refuse to admit anything contrary to what they think God would have to say. They thought Christ came to institute a physical kingdom then and there to free the Jews from the Romans and to take Jerusalem. You've seen this in the Bible, that it would be all glory and no suffering. In view of all that, right, Christ has been many times now saying to them, trying to condition them to not be alarmed that he was going to be brutally slain as the Lamb of God to be sacrificed for sinners. If the saying was hidden from them, it was hidden by their own sinful imaginations. His words are crystal clear. Jesus' words are not enigmatic, like Confucius or something. They are very plain and they are very clear. Our problem is we have opinions about what Christ ought to be and what he requires of us and what he ought to do. And we hold them so strongly to the point that we refuse the words that are plain to hear out of the Bible. And that plagues God's people. It plagues the disciples. It plagues you and it plagues me. This is not a text to look on the disciples as a bunch of fools, uh, unlike us. We are very much like these people. All of us. All of us. Our own selfish desires get in the way of God's word, penetrating our heart, and so the word becomes hid to us. And we need to be aware. We need to beware. It is humility that you must have when you come to the word of God. And you must always ask yourself, as the word seems maybe contrary to the things that you think you hold to, you must ask, could I be wrong? And pride will tell you, no, you're not wrong. You cannot be wrong. God is wrong, and you hesitate to say it, and you may, we will never say it out loud. But that's what pride does when it comes to the word. And you refuse to say, God is right, Jesus is right, I am wrong about my opinions. And so when you go to the word of God, you need to ask the Holy Ghost, instruct me in what the word truly says. And when I am struggling and wrestling with it, let me wrestle with it as Jacob wrestled with God. And not just give up on it. And not just say, well, you know what? Who cares? I'll go with my own opinion. And note something very telling of the disciples' reaction. Because they know what the words mean. The text says they feared to ask him of that saying. They're afraid to ask Jesus Christ, what is it you mean? Why are we afraid to ask the Lord what the word means? Instead saying, well, let me close my Bible a little quicker today. It's because we know it'll demand that our will and our desires are going to be put away. And so we would rather live in ignorance of it instead of asking the Lord what he has of us. You can be afraid, actually, to understand the Bible because you do not really want to know what God's will is. You know it'll cause you to die to self. You know that you will have to submit to God's will and you think it is better for you to not know what God has to say than to submit to the will of God and to die to yourself. But beloved, not only does that not glorify God, not only does that seek to elevate you over your sovereign, it will also be to your own hurt. It really will. He knows in the word of God what is best and what is best for you. If only Adam and Eve 
had listened to what God had to say instead of the devil, how much better it would have been for them. And that's what we don't understand. We don't want, we fear to know what God has to say because it'll cause us to be greatly humbled. And yet that is the very thing that we need. And so we can fear to know the will of God, but we would be so much more blessed if we put away our opinions and our own self and submitted to the word. But in contrast to sinful man, you look upon the Savior in the scriptures and you look on his heart. You look on Christ who said, not my will, but thine be done to the Father. You look on the Christ who always did what pleased the Father and came humbly to be a servant of God to the people of God. And perhaps that is what makes the disciples squabbles over who would be the greatest in the kingdom all the more obnoxious when it comes on the heels of the king saying, I have come to give my own life to save you. That Jesus Christ, Son of God, El Shaddai, God Almighty, Jehovah, I have come to save and serve sinners by laying down my own life for them. I have come to be a servant to the people of God. And then they squabble over who is going to be greatest. Astonishing thing, what is in the heart of men? You know, when any man in the church seeks to exalt himself in view of the fact that the Son of God came down from heaven, God in the flesh, right, to lay down his life And he withdrew from himself every divine prerogative as we heard at the communion service. That he humbled himself and took the form of what? A servant for us. It really ought to astonish us that we sinners would seek to have the preeminence. What does the second chapter of Philippians say? Of your mind, let this mind be in you which was also in whom? Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him what? The form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man. See, here you connect what his sayings were to the disciples. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. This is one of the most astonishing words in all the Bible. You need to let it sink into your ears and into your heart. God Almighty came down from heaven to be what? A servant. Astonishing. And so that means, beloved, as we rightly understand the person of Christ, that God was born into a manger. That God, as later on in this chapter we will read in a couple of weeks, had no place to lay his head unlike the birds and the foxes. It was God who washed the feet of sinners. It was God who laid down his life on the cross. It was God who loved us to become a servant for us in the incarnation. These are things that the angels are astonished by, friends. Think of Matthew 20 when Christ said, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto or be served, but to minister or serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What a thing it is, beloved, to realize that this divine person did not come to be served, but came to serve us by giving his life as a ransom to purchase us. 
His life given and exchanged for our own life. It is in the shadow of that truth, and maybe that is the reason why we are so loath to humble ourselves, right? It is in the shadow of that great divine truth that you and I are called to humble ourselves. That if Christ would humble himself, how can it be that we would say that is too far beyond us? You are to say, how can I not have the mind of my Savior? If Christ so greatly served others, how can I not do the same? How can I think so highly of myself when I am a creature and I am a sinner, when Christ, being blessed God, loved me and gave himself for me as a servant for my sake? How can such words from the Bible not sink into my soul? You know, this is the meditation that is the very beginning of the mortification of our pride and our self. Jesus Christ, Son of God, come to serve me. We look on Christ as both our righteousness and our example. Well, uh, time going quickly. The Lord provides another object lesson for you. And so we'll consider that in our second heading, which is the humility of a child. Next, verse 46 says, Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest, right? This is where, again, the obnoxiousness of the disciples of Christ, and we include that ourselves in that, right? We will go one Lord's day hearing that the Lord uh, has, has uh, given himself for us to serve us in the gospel, and then we will immediately think about how I may exalt myself. They go the way of the world, and we do too, the way of the Gentiles who dispute who would be greatest in Christ's kingdom. And you get the sense, just as they feared to ask the Lord what the saying meant that he must die, they also get the sense that they knew that their dispute was wrong. That this dispute over power and position would never be blessed by their master. They're ashamed of it. Because in Mark 9.33, it seems that they held their dispute away in secret from the, from the hearing of Jesus. And Jesus would summon them to ask what their controversy was about, though of course he knew what was in their heart. Verse 47 in our text says Jesus perceived the thought of their heart, but it was something they were keeping from their master. You know, that their dispute was done away from their master shows that self-seeking is a sin that we often want to keep far from the Lord's attention. But we are to bring it to him. He already knows what's in your heart and mine too, beloved. We are to ask him, O oh Lord, Mortify my pride. O oh Lord, mortify my desire for self-exaltation. Too few pray that way, especially the ministers and elders of God. But we are all called to do it because even the most sanctified man or woman is still far too prideful. Far too prideful. Far too thinking of themselves. When you, you say or you see somebody uh, that we will say is somebody who only thinks of themselves, that is false. We are all struggling with this particular sin. And what the Lord does in response is quite remarkable. He brings a living illustration to them. And he puts a child before them. You know, a child like one of our little ones here. And uh, he says... Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. 
And that the child itself is an object lesson is crystal clear in Matthew 18.4, parallel text. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you want to know who is greatest, who is going to be counted great in the kingdom of heaven? He says, humble yourself. Die to self. Grow in the grace of humility. That is the way to be greatest in the kingdom. You will never gain the applause of men, perhaps, because, right, children are often overlooked. They're not looked at as the great ones of the kingdom, though they belong in the kingdom and why they are here today. That's another sermon. I've already preached on that theme. But men don't look as a, at a child, right, at a great conference and look, oh, here are great ones. No, they're the ones who are overlooked, right? And he says, you humble yourself as a child, You be humble and think very little of yourself, and then you will be great in the kingdom of heaven. You know, the Holy Ghost said through Peter, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. 1 Peter 5, 6. That's very interesting. Here was Peter one day squabbling over who is the greatest. And then the Lord does, and this is our encouragement, isn't it? When you see Peter and how the Lord has changed his heart. And he sees that exaltation, he learned finally, one day the Holy Ghost had Christ saying, sink into his heart. Now, that's a wonderful thing for any of you who struggle with the word of God, is to have that hope, that one day that word will come and sink into your heart as it did for Peter. Peter got it later. And exaltation comes when we humble ourselves before God. Now you might ask, I've already mentioned a few things. Why did Jesus use a child to illustrate this doctrine? Foremost, to illustrate that we are never to have a high esteem of ourselves. We are to be as a child. When Solomon, you remember, was at his very best, and he was most blessed by God, what did he admit? And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king. This is when he was made king. Instead of David my father, and I am but what? A little child. I know not how to go out or come in. 1 Kings 3, 7. He is not speaking as you hear those words, right? He's not speaking of his age. He is speaking of his understanding. He knows he is but as a little child. He doesn't have the wisdom necessary to shepherd the people of God as their king. And all of us, oh, what it would be if we had the wisdom of Solomon in these things. Solomon at his best anyhow. But returning to Christ's illustration of the humility of a child, let us first remember, lest you go too far with the analogy, every illustration he uses has limits. They're designed to grab our attention straight away, right? He, he does something that we may not expect because the flesh is contrary to spirit. So he gives us an illustration. You would think that maybe he would even take some mighty preacher uh, uh, of his and the disciples and say, you know what? Uh, uh, Peter's a really good preacher. Look at Peter. Or John really loves men. Look at John. No. Well, at that time, it's probably not so clear that he loved men, actually. But that said, he takes a child. Who in the world would use a child as a picture of greatness? Not great in strength, not great in wisdom, not great in knowledge, not great in any of the ways that men of this world count greatness. But as I said, there are only some things you can take from a child, right? Children are not completely innocent. That's not what Christ is getting at here. They have a sin nature. 
And you know many children actually, even at early days, exhibit pride and self-seeking, right? This is not a perfect, airtight analogy, but meant to get your attention. Jesus wants you to see, however, their relative innocency and relative humility. They're still sinners, and adults relative to children is what the comparison is, right? There's a wonderful illustration from the animal kingdom that I've heard used when it comes to our children's relative innocency, and I think this might help you with the doctrine of original sin. A lion cub, for instance, is relatively tame and quite cute. You may even be able to play with it. But the seed of what it truly is, a mauler of men, is rooted in the cub nevertheless. It is what it is, a man-killer, even though at some point it seems like a very cute cub. It will never be specifically trained to kill men, but it will. Even those raised domestically, you see, uh, those that are, grow up not even in the wild, they will still have the instinct to kill men. It is what it is. And the same thing goes for human children. Our children appear relatively innocent, but they have a sin nature that continues to blossom. And you see more of it as they grow. And so they need Christ and the gospel from the very earliest days. There is no age of accountability before the Lord. You look at Psalm 51, right? Sin and corruption are in their heart from conception. Let your children then know of Christ from their very earliest days, that they need a Savior, that they're not as innocent as they may think they are. But even with that preface, consider in what ways you are to be as a child. And here are three areas for you to consider children for humility. The first, and perhaps quite pertinent to the context here, is be teachable. You know, some who here we are to be as children, though, they have the opposite view, right? They think that Christ is commending ignorance. No, he's actually teaching the very opposite. You are to be teachable, and you are to grow and learn as children grow and learn. 1 Corinthians 14.20 puts it very plainly. Brethren, be not children in understanding. Howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men or grown up. Right? In malice, be as innocent as a child is often innocent. But as it is for your understanding, become men. You are to grow in understanding. You are to mature in knowledge. In humility, you are to ever be teachable and never thinking you have arrived. Children know or should know that their posture is to be a learner and not the master. And that is the posture of every Christian person. You know, it's actually... There's very little more obnoxious than a minister who thinks he has nothing to learn. Even in our church courts, you get a sense that some of the older men think they have nothing to learn from the younger. And on the flip side, some of the younger men think that the older saints with experience have nothing to teach them. This is a great problem. We must all remain teachable, testing everything that we hear against the word of God, even if it seems contrary to our current opinions. On the other hand, Thinking too highly of yourself will cause you to stop your ears. Jeremiah thirteen fifteen. Hear ye and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord hath spoken. It's the proud man who will stop saying that he is as a child in understanding. Because we are all as children compared to the wisdom of God. Remain a student of the word to your very last day, beloved. 
Never be satisfied when you come to a text. I have heard that before. I have read that before. I have nothing to learn from it. Every text, every word from God is something you can learn from. You are to be teachable. Why would you not want to, first of all? Are you not learning in the word of God of the most glorious subject of all, who is Christ Jesus our Lord? And do you not have the very best teacher, Jesus Christ, by his Holy Spirit? Yes. Second, the second way we are to be as children is to not have selfish ambition. Ambition to elevate ourselves over others. This is something children don't exhibit as much, though the root is there as much as adults do. Instead, we are to first seek Christ and the things of God over our own selfish ambitions. Philippians 2.1 says, For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ." Right? We, we often seek what we want and not what Christ wants. We often seek our things and not the things which are Christ's. You know, the, tonight, and we think on revival, you think of Haggai's time, where they refused to build the temple of God because they were seeking their own things instead. And we are also called to esteem others better than ourselves. Philippians 2.3, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. You know, there is generally, not perfectly, a lowliness of mind that children exhibit, and we are to have as well. You know, not many of them walk around saying, well, I'm better than that adult, and I'm better than this person, I'm better than that. And yet that is found in their heart in seed form, and it will continue to grow until they are like us adults. And we have to see that we are to think of ourselves less. Scripture says not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Romans 12, verse 3. The thing is, though, friends, most of us think far too highly of ourselves. And children do not automatically seek to deal with matters too great. Psalm 131 says, Lord, my heart is not haughty nor my eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. You know, in my time in the church, it is those men who with reckless abandon say that they are going to be ministers and elders without any hesitation or any pause uh, who make a wreckage of things who say, who among us will be the greatest? This will elevate me over the rest of the sheep. They want to be the man in charge and for others to see them. Uh, you think of them naming ministries after themselves, but not desiring that Christ would increase and they would decrease. You know, it is men who think like Moses, who say, surely there are better men out there to do the work that the Lord will call. Men who are humble, you think of John, the apostle, right? Humble, he doesn't even want to name himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. He doesn't do it. These are the men that run the race well. Peter wrote, think of Peter again here, one squabbling, let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. Yes, that was written about women, but to God, whether male or female, this is of great price, a meek and quiet spirit. However, there is a good kind of ambition. In fact, Christians ought to be ambitious. You might say that seems a contradiction, but it is not. Because Christian ambition is actually rooted in denial of self 
and is rooted in service. Jesus says in Mark 9.35, the parallel text, if any man desire to be first, so there's a good desire there, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. You know, desire to be first, but understand what that means. It means that you are to think of yourself last and you are to be a servant of all. And so in your ambition, even in your ordinary vocation, this must be on the mind. Children, for instance, uh, it is good to desire to be a doctor. And if you are, be the very best doctor you can be. Excel greatly. Work hard at it. Be the best that God can make you. Your motivation, though, is the difference. The worldly man wants to be the best doctor he can with his eye fixed on the big house, with his eye fixed on the prestige of a good name, the great vacations, and all of he can have in this world. Whereas why does the Christian want to be the best doctor he can be? So he can serve all. That he would save many lives. He wants to bless his neighbor in being a doctor. That he would take his talents and excel even if he were not paid so much. He would still do it. And he would say, I will be the best doctor I can be. And the same goes for every vocation. You are to excel in them, whether you are a technician, a restaurant worker, a janitor, a minister, or whatever it is that you are called to be. You excel to serve. Third way to be as a child is to rely on God as a child relies on their parents. That's very interesting, and it struck me this week how Peter frames humility in 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. He says, be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. What comes next? Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. You need to humble yourself before God and cast all of your cares on him. You know, children, by and large, don't go to bed fearing that they will not be cared for unless they are living in a sinful house, of course. But I trust in our homes, our children don't go to bed wondering if they will have food on the table tomorrow or or they will uh, have uh, warmth, right, by and large. There's actually a species of pride that is found in the Christian who thinks their well-being is in their own hands. And that's what it is. It's a species of pride. That is one reason you worry and are anxious and why that is a sin against God, right? But if you humble yourself before God, if you would cast your cares on him, knowing this marvelous truth, what is the truth that grounds it? He cares for you. What a thing it is when you are anxious, right? And you're doing the things you ought to do, right? If a man is working, right, he's not... Uh, if a man doesn't work, he, he will not eat, yes. But if you're doing the things that you are called to do in God's eyes, you are not to have a care that you will not be cared for. Why? Because he cares for you. And what a tremendous sin it is to tell God in your anxieties and your worries, you don't care about me. How does he care for you? He has said, as a father cares for his children. You are to depend on the gracious care of God. And that takes humility. It takes humility to say, I am not self-made, that I depend on God for everything, that nothing ultimately rests on my own shoulders, but they rest on the uh, shoulders of my Savior. And that ought to take every weight and every burden off of you. And if you do prosper in this life, beloved, 
it would have you give God the glory for it. Why do I have what I have? It is all His grace to me. I did not deserve it. My works did not earn it. It is all of grace. Unless you don't know this, you cannot even enter the kingdom of God until you have humbled yourself, friend. In Matthew 18, our parallel text, Jesus says, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Right? The proud, self-exalted Pharisee never saw a need for the Lord's grace. It is the humble tax collector who says, Have mercy on me, a sinner who goes home justified. If you do not see your need for grace, if you do not see that you depend on God for salvation, as a child depends on its parent, you are deceived and you are too proud to be saved. Right? You need to think very little of your own righteousness. You are to say with all humility, all of my righteousnesses are as filthy rags. There is nothing good I have done to merit salvation. And then enter the kingdom by casting yourself on Christ's mercies. Well, the disciples squabbled over who would be greatest. And Jesus answered the question in 18, Matthew 18.4, Whosoever, therefore, shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest. And as I thought on that, I think you and I will be utterly surprised in glory to see who is closest to Christ's throne. Men you once esteemed so greatly, men who thought they were something, may be a lot further away from the throne of grace than the quiet men and women who you and I completely ignored, who thought so little of themselves and thought so much of Christ. If you love the Savior and want to be nearer to Him, be humble. Think of Him and His people much and think of yourself less. Well, for our final head, and we'll have to conclude quickly with this, let's consider the humility of a servant. And I considered much of this already, so I'll try to breeze through this. I cited Mark 9.35 earlier where the Lord said, If you desire to be first, you are to be last of all and servant of all. And so we return then to where we began, with a view to the Lord of glory, who came from heaven to be our servant. And I don't think we are shocked by that as we ought. We call him the suffering servant, don't we? Right? And you think on this, right? Who are we that he would serve us? Who are we sinners that he would serve us? And when he says, you be a servant of all, Right? Not just the ones that you love, not just the ones that you like, but you be a servant of all. We ask the question, who are we that my God came down to serve me of all people? Who am I but one who has shaken his fist at the Almighty, whose sins are an affront to the holiness of God, and yet he comes down to save me? The link from him to us is again in Philippians 2, right? Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was where? Also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And we do not do it we don't serve others because there is vain glory in it. I've been astonished. My wife sometimes shows me some of these things or tells me about them. YouTubers and, 
and uh, she's not on TikTok, but YouTubers and TikTok folks who broadcast their good deeds to get applause. You see it on Facebook, you find it on social media all over the place. Look at what I did, look at what I gave, look at what I am doing for others. That is vain glory. That is glory for thyself. These will not get Christ's commendation for such things. On the other hand, even in this church, there are men and women who quietly serve the Lord without being noticed. Right? You may notice me. You may notice the elders. But there are those who serve this church, who clean pots and pans and wash utensils, who set out chairs and tables. Do they do this because they want to be noticed by any of you? No. You probably have no idea they do it or who does it. But they do it because they love Christ and they are called to be servants of all. At least I trust that is why they do it. Many will not serve all because they think these things are beneath them. And they deceive themselves. For if a man thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. Galatians chapter 6. The ones who are truly great are humble servants of the Lord. They think little of themselves and they say no task is too demeaning in the kingdom. And there is not one who is too lowly for them to serve. He said, be a servant of all, not some. You know, the men that we've approved with joy to come under care at Presbytery. You know, first, my very first Presbytery meeting, uh, and these two men are now ministers. You know, I walk into the registration, and ahead of me had walked in two students under care. What is their first thought? Is to set up tables and chairs. Nobody asked them to do it. They just did it. Because, as is often said, if you want to be a minister, you better be good with scrubbing toilets to serve the kingdom, not just preaching the word. This is the mind of Christ, who served the ungodly. And Jesus says, you are to receive even a child in his name. Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all the same shall be great. You know, if Diotrephes thought of himself so highly in Third John, he would not receive apostles. You and I are called to have such little esteem of ourselves that we would receive even little children and be servants of them. Sometimes we want to be servants of the great figures. And this is often the sin of flattery as we confessed it in the Ninth Commandment. There is nothing wrong, let me put this there, in serving those who have greatly blessed you. In fact, that is commendable. However, if they are the only ones you want to serve, that is a great problem, a terrible problem. Because if you only desire to serve those who bless you and can do something for you, you are not a true servant. What is it that we can give Christ? Absolutely nothing. There is nothing we can do to add to the blessedness of the Son of God, and He comes to serve us. If you only desire to get something in service, you are not a servant. And Jesus said, you receive a child in his name, and he sweetens the deal for you. Child of God, how does he do it? Take these words to heart. Whosoever shall receive this child in my name, what? Receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me, receiveth him that sent me. You know, what sweetens service and humility, a quiet, unseen one, and an esteeming of others, uh, receiving the lowly, is that when you do it in the name of Christ, you are receiving Christ himself. When you do these things to the least of his brethren, he has said, you do it unto me. You receive him, and you receive the Father that sent Christ. 
When you serve those you will never gain anything from and you receive them. When you serve children, as our Sabbath school teachers uh, do between services, when you serve the poor, the halt, and the blind, when you serve the notorious sinner who needs a word about Jesus, when you serve the least of these, knowing you will never gain anything in this world, as you serve those who cannot give you anything in return and maybe even hate you for it, do you not gain something far better than worldly commendation and the fruit of worldly ambition? You gain further communion with Christ and the Father through the Holy Spirit. And to the child of God, that is everything. Not having your name in lights. Is that not heavenly treasure as we thought about it in our spiritual time of discussion two weeks ago that moth and rust cannot take away from you? So may you have the heart of the Savior as you are united to him by faith. May Christ, this be your prayer, may Christ increase that I may decrease. May you think less of self and more of others so that as you do so, you will have a greater sense of the Savior. Isn't that something, right? As you walk with the Lord, as you serve others, you humble your pride, right? With the proud, right? He shows himself forward, right? To the forward, he shows himself forward. You know that as you are humble before the Lord, he shows himself more to you. And that is how you become great in the kingdom. A kingdom whose praise is not of men, but of God. Amen. Let us leave Luke there for today and let us arise for prayer. O God of heaven, who are we and who are our people that Christ, Son of God, has come to save us, to give his life for us? Lord, give us the mind of Christ, united by faith to him. Help us put to death our sin. Help us put to death our pride. Help us to esteem others as better than ourselves. Help us to receive even children in the name of Jesus, knowing that our service to them will be overlooked by uh, the world of uh, uh, great men, so-called, but is something greatly blessed of the Lord. Help us desire that place that is close to Christ, a place of humility and not of pride. Help us, O God, for we are great sinners. Help us, O God, because your sayings do not sink into our ears. Help us, O God, drive this word by the Holy Spirit. Your word is as fire, Father. Uh, Make this word a fire in our heart. Uh, Help us to not leave this place, having the word go in one ear and out the other. Instead, may it sink deeply. May we drink deeply of Christ in the word of God, that it would be to your glory. We ask your forgiveness, Father, knowing we receive it in Jesus. Amen.